Please stand for the reading of God's word. Today's scripture reading is from the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verses 1 to 11. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that he may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is God's word. Be seated. Well, good morning and happy Palm Sunday. If you have your Bibles open to John 15, uh, we'll be looking at this passage and how it shapes our understanding of what we commemorate every year, seven days before Easter. Would you pray with me this morning as we open God's Word together? God, as we we open Scripture this morning, uh, we do so with a desire to hear your voice, to see your face, to behold your glory, and to know your love for us more deeply. God, we ask that you would speak to us this morning from John 15, and that the truths of this passage uh, would abide in us, that they would remain in us, and that we would be shaped, our lives would be shaped, our hearts and our affections would be shaped by what we have seen here in these words of your Son. Lord, we ask all of these things in His name. Amen. Recently, I was reading an article about a rescue mission in the Bering Sea, a few hundred miles off the coast of Alaska. A fishing vessel with about 47 crew members had sent out a distress call after they were stranded in the middle of the night with mechanical issues. So the Coast Guard jumped into action, and a helicopter arrived ahead of the rescue boats to a site that they were not anticipating. They had brought a pump with them to set up in the stranded boat to bail out water that had begun causing the boat to list to the side. But when they arrived and they looked out at the scene before them, through the snow that was blowing through the air and the stirring water beneath them, they threw the pump into the sea because the ship was already completely gone. Instead, where they expected to see a a ship, they saw a few dozen blinking lights from the the life vests of the fishermen who were bobbing around in the sea and scattered over about a mile. 
So the Coast Guard's plan to assist an ailing ship instantly became a rescue mission. And as I read this story, I was intrigued by one detail reported by one of the rescuers. As he hung suspended from one of the helicopters by a wire, a fisherman began to frantically swim toward him, and he called out, don't move. He dropped himself into a wave that brought him straight to the fisherman, where he attached a harness and signaled to the crew in the helicopter to hoist him to safety. He knew what he was doing. He had prepared for this exact scenario, and he knew what the fisherman did not know, that the more he frantically struggled, the more danger he would be in. Instead, what he needed to do was wait and then cling to his rescuer. It's a line that has struck with me, and it's that same notion that Jesus shares with his disciples here in John 15 as he prepares them for his arrest, which will come in just a few hours. He knows that they will be frantic. They will struggle against what is happening. And he knows that what they need to do is cling to their rescuer. It begins, his teaching here begins with his seventh and final I am statement in the book of John. Throughout this book, Jesus has revealed aspects of his divinity and his grace and his glory by using this phrase, I am. It's a reference to the covenant name of God, which Bruce actually just mentioned to us a moment ago from Exodus 3, where God told Moses, tell them that I am has sent you. Here, as Jesus and the disciples make their way through the city of Jerusalem, the home of Israel's temple and the epicenter of Jewish religious and cultural practice, he says to them, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. He's drawing on a historical and significant reference to Israel as the vineyard of God. It's a recurring theme in the Old Testament. For example, Psalm 80 is a praise to God for the Exodus, where he brought his people out of slavery in Egypt and established them in the land that he had promised to give them. And it describes that history by saying to God, you brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and you planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and it filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade and the mighty cedars with its branches. It's such an important part of Jewish identity that the Jewish people actually commemorated their identity as God's vineyard with a massive art installation in Jerusalem. Ancient historians recorded that leading up to the first century, a giant solid gold grapevine had actually been built and hung on the outside of the temple. They wanted everyone who saw it to remember that God had chosen them, that he had established them, that he had blessed them among all the people of the, of the world. It was a prideful monument to their special status before God. But most of the references to Israel being the vineyard of God are not very flattering. Jeremiah 2.21, in Jeremiah 2.21, God asks, Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? Or in Isaiah 5, where the prophet speaks to his people, his countrymen, using the same metaphor to make a point. He writes, God planted a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and he cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. It's reminiscent of the words we read from Psalm 80. 
He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded only wild grapes. These these passages paint a humbling picture. Though God had provided for every need, he had protected his people and given them abundant blessing. Though he has dwelt with them personally in the temple, they have turned away from him. They have become a vineyard that only produces sour grapes. Throughout their history, they have pursued idols. They have sought their own way. They have even sought to manipulate God by their use of the law. They have not become the people that God called them to be. Rather than producing the fruit of righteousness and godliness in their lives, they have become a wild vineyard. And knowing all of this, knowing all of this history, Jesus says to his disciples in John 15, I am the true vine. He is announcing that in every way that the people of God and the nation of Israel had failed, he would succeed. In all the ways that God had not been honored, he would. In every way that God had not been obeyed, he would. And where Israel had failed to produce good fruit, Jesus would. He is the true vine. And he also says that his father is the vine dresser, the one who cares for and tends to the vineyard. Several years ago, we got to take a short trip to Northern California, to a region that's famous for its wineries. And while we were there, we actually got to visit with the owner of a small vineyard. He told us that he had worked in vineyards since he was in high school. And that after he finished high school, he went to study business and agriculture. And after that, he spent years in apprenticeships and hard work becoming an expert in his field before he had the chance to buy a few acres of his own. It was obvious to us that this was his life's passion. And he told us that during the growing season, he would tend to each plant by hand. And he would come along with string and tie up the branches that had become heavy with grapes so that they wouldn't snap off. And then he harvested all of his grapes by hand rather than with a machine. And after the harvest, he would go through the fields again and prune each plant by hand, one by one. So it made sense when he told us that he knows each plant individually and remembers from year to year how each has grown and changed. He is so immersed in the life life of these vines that he knows them one by one. God is the vine dresser who tends to his vineyard with this type of of care and concern. Just as the vineyard owner in California does not leave his field unattended, but instead is in it every day with dirt on his hands and sweat on his forehead, caring for each plant with special attention, so too does God care for his people, the people of his vineyard, those grafted into faith and into the life of his son. That is the point that Jesus is making here. No longer will people look for God and find him in a temple made of stone. As he has already said in chapter 2, he is the temple where God dwells with his people. No longer will people seek righteousness by obedience to the law because in Christ the righteousness of God is counted theirs by faith. No longer will the people of a particular nation be his beacon of hope and glory to the world. And all of this will come about through the careful work of the vine dresser and the life that comes through the true vine. These are words that the disciples will need to remember as Jesus is taken away in chains, when he is tortured and eventually executed. 
Because it, will, it is through the willing sacrifice of Jesus that the life that he promises here will be made a reality. He is the eternally glorious, eternally holy Son of God, who, out of love for these 11 disciples and all who would one day call him Lord, willingly came to live among us and die as one of us. Without him, each of us, every one of us, stands condemned before a holy and just God who in love cannot overlook sin and unholiness. It would be unloving of him to allow sin to go unanswered. So, because every person is inwardly corrupted and every person lives in sin, every person stands under the just wrath of God. But Jesus, who took on flesh and became one of us, takes upon himself the whole of our guilt. And according to 2 Corinthians, for our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It is by being in him, according to 2 Corinthians, that we are set free from condemnation and even made right and righteous before God. This is the truth that Jesus will teach his disciples in this scene here in John 15. They need to listen closely, and so do we. Because at this moment, the very moment that Jesus is speaking with them, people are conspiring against him. Judas has betrayed him. Jewish leaders are gathering their forces to seek him out, and Jesus knows that they are coming. But his death will not be his defeat. It will be the moment when the weight of sin is borne, so that in him we might become righteous. This is the true vine, the one in whom there is salvation and life. And Jesus wants his friends to know that his arrest and his execution, which will cause them to panic, will not be his defeat, but will serve to finish his redeeming work. So all of life, everything, is defined by whether someone is in Christ or apart from him. Everything hangs on that. And in the rest of this passage, Jesus teaches on how his identity as the true vine and his father's identity as the vine dresser shapes how we live our lives and look to him in hope. First, God desires good fruit. No one who plants a garden wants it to grow only thorn bushes. Part of the reason God repeatedly uses this metaphor to describe his people as a vineyard is the fact that a vineyard is planted for a purpose, to produce grapes. God is invested in what our lives produce. So Jesus says in verse 2, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. It's a continuation of the metaphor, and an expansion to include the disciples and all people in the point that Jesus is making. As he'll say in verse 5, the people are the branches growing out of the true vine. God wants his vineyard to be productive. And not only that, he wants it to be an abundant harvest of good fruit. So as the vine dresser, he tends to the vines, both the good and the bad. Scripture clearly teaches that Jesus will never lose one appointed by God for faith and salvation. But as John's gospel has demonstrated to us, there are many who will appear to be believers who are not. 
And Jesus' language here seems chosen specifically to call to mind one specific and very recent example of that point. Judas, who was called by Jesus to be one of the 12 disciples, who traveled with him and learned at his side and affirmed his teaching and his authority, and who, by all accounts, was a faithful friend of Jesus until this very night, seems to be who Jesus is referring to here. When he left to betray Jesus, as Jesus knew that he would, the other disciples suspected nothing of him, and even assumed that he had been given some special assignment by Jesus. So little they suspected him. Outwardly, he was the perfect follower of Christ. Inwardly, of course, we know he was lost. So considering Judas, we get a sense for what Jesus means when he talks about fruit. A redeemed life and a restored heart will produce inward change, not only outward actions and appearances. Fruit is the outworking of the deep inward transformation that occurs when the Holy Spirit does what he has promised to do. When he redeems and restores the hearts of God's people. It's a theme explored all over the New Testament. It includes producing righteous character, as Paul prayed for in Philippians 1. It includes praise of God's holiness and peace, the fruit of a redeemed and disciplined heart, described by the author of Hebrews. And it includes what Paul described as the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control, gentleness, and self-control. So God desires his vines to thrive and that the fruit that they produce to be abundant. So he takes two important steps, which Jesus describes here. First, he removes unproductive vines. Those who are not grafted into the life-giving true vine are clipped away. Second, those who are bearing fruit are pruned, he says in verse 2. God, as the careful vine dresser, comes with his shears to cut off What will obstruct future fruitfulness? Jesus' words here parallel the assurance of Hebrews 12 that the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. As a good father, he brings his children to maturity by exercising discipline when it is necessary. For us, it is never a pleasant experience but it is a good one. Out of love, and because he is a good and capable vine dresser, he knows just what to cut away in order to bring about a bigger harvest of righteousness and godliness and peace and praise next year. Sometimes it comes about by the feeling of shame and guilt we feel after we have stumbled in sin. Other times, it is the terrible consequences that come about as a result of our sin. Or it may be the loss of a dream career or opportunity that reveals that we were building our life on something other than Christ. God's discipline, His pruning, it takes many forms. They are never easy, but they are good. As he considered these things, Charles Spurgeon once said, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. He knew that God's pruning is often hard to face, but if it brings us into the presence of Christ, we will one day look on it as the vessel of his love and his blessing. God desires fruit in the lives of his people, and by his grace, he is willing to do what is necessary to bring his people to maturity and an abundant harvest of good fruit.
Second, good fruit comes about only by abiding in Christ. Jesus tells his friends in verse 2, already you are clean, or pruned actually, it's the very same word in Greek, because of the word that I have spoken to you. They are his people, not because of their effort, but because of his grace. God's pruning work, his cleaning work, is already underway in them. They will be men of righteousness, men who uphold the gospel and who will even give their lives to proclaim the life-saving news of salvation, not because they are good people, but because Christ is a gracious Savior. So he says in verses 4 and 5, "'Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches.'" Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. During a storm this winter, a big branch was broken off the tree behind my house. No matter what I do to it now, it will never have green leaves growing off of it again. I could plant it in the ground. I could try to reattach it to my tree with screws or something. I could glue leaves to it. I could theoretically make it look like it's alive. But you know, and I know, that nothing I do to that branch will make it a living branch again. Jesus wants the disciples to know that no matter what they try, they will not produce the fruits of godliness in their lives unless they are connected to him. They might make it look like it. They could glue the leaves on, but they cannot produce the fruit of righteousness apart from him. And he really hammers that point home in this passage. One of the things that uh, we often remind our students of in our Bible studies with them is that a tool that we can use to identify a passage's main theme is word repetition. Using that tool, it does not take a PhD in biblical Greek to see what Jesus's emphasis is here. Abide in me, he says. In fact, he uses that word, abide, ten times in just a few sentences. To abide in Christ is to receive him by faith and trust him. It is to hear his word and submit to it. It is to worship him and live in such a way that he is revealed to the world to be sufficient and satisfying. And it is to hold fast to his salvation even when we are tempted to do otherwise. Like the fishermen being rescued from the frigid waters of the Bering Sea, Jesus says, don't move. I will come to you, and all you need to do is hold on to me. And those who do will be people in whom good fruit begins to grow. This is a hopeful truth and a sobering one. This passage holds a mirror up to every reader that only they and God can see. When you read John 15, you're looking at a mirror that only you and God can see. It compels us to ask whether we are living branches connected to the true vine or whether we are lifeless and withering, disconnected from Christ with artificial leaves glued on. Without overextending this metaphor too far, I think Jesus wants us to ask whether the fruit of the true vine is growing in our hearts. I mentioned that it is a mirror that is only visible to each of us individually and to God because it is possible to look like a perfect disciple of Christ 
while there is no inward fruit of righteousness to prove it, as Jesus will say in verse 8. It is possible to know Christ, as Judas did, but not to trust him. It is possible to appear to be alive, but only be, as Jesus said to the Pharisees, a whitewashed tomb, beautiful on the outside, but inwardly corrupted and marked by death. Many of us were rocked earlier this year by the news that Ravi Zacharias, the internationally renowned Christian apologist who died last year, was revealed to have spent years engaging in and covering up egregious sexual sin. The details of the scandal are disturbing to read. And they come as such a great shock to us because he was someone considered by many to be completely above reproach. He was revered and respected, the last person suspected by many of such evil behavior. Outwardly, he seemed flawless to us. Yet when he looked in the mirror of John 15, he saw what no one else except God could see. This is a hopeful passage, but it is a sobering one. Because Jesus promises that in him, as we abide in him, he will make good fruit grow. But at the same time, he indicates that if we look for fruit, if we examine our hearts with honesty and we do not see any there, then we need to ask whether we are actually abiding in him at all, even if outwardly we look like devoted disciples of Christ, living and thriving. In light of this, Jesus makes an essential point that abundant life is found by abiding in him. Jesus warns his disciples and all of his followers who would come after them, saying, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. It is an unpopular truth, but it is a biblical one. Apart from Christ, there is nothing but God's just wrath against sin. That's what Jesus is getting at here. It's a common analogy in Scripture to represent God's wrath, His judgment with fire. Jesus is not sugarcoating things here, even if we might wish that He would sometimes. Even though we might feel at first glance like this is a cruel thing to say, it's important that we know this morning it is His love that compels Him to say it. It would be terribly unloving, hateful even, for him to know the danger of his just wrath and to know that there is a way out from under it, yet to remain silent before those whose lives will be lost if he does. It is a stern and startling warning, but it is immediately followed by comforting assurance that the fire of God's wrath is not a foregone conclusion. Instead, he says, God does more than merely spare his people from judgment, but gives abundantly to them out of his love for them. And it all comes by abiding in Christ. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. It's a callback to a comment he made in the passage we looked at last week in chapter 14 when he told the same 11 disciples, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. And the Father will be glorified in the Son point he's making in both verses is the same. Those who abide in Christ 
are not simply passengers on the bus that he's driving. Because to abide in Christ is not a passive thing. In chapter 14, Jesus talked about believing, about obeying his commandments, and about loving him. He talked about the presence of God in the dwelling, the indwelling of his Holy Spirit. That is no mere acquaintance. It is no passive relationship. To abide is to be drawn near and to cling to Christ with every ounce of our strength, the way that you would cling to a rescuer in a stormy sea. Here in chapter 15, Jesus includes his word in the point that he's making. His word abides in us, we read, as we abide in him. And suddenly our understanding of what it means to read the Bible takes on a new level of intensity. I remember being asked several years ago by a student how he could enjoy reading the Bible more. He told me he knew it was important, that he knew he should do it, but when he tried, he just got bored and distracted. He knew it was important, but he wanted to know how he could actually want to do it. And I told him that we will always hit the wall if we think of reading the Bible like a chore that we need to do every day. It will never stick, even if we know it's important and we know that it's a good thing to do. But if we think of the Bible as something given to us to abide in us, to give us comfort and reveal life-giving truth, we will begin to think of reading the Bible as the chance to cling to our rescuer. We will begin to understand that it is the story of our own rescue, and we will read it eagerly to be reassured and encouraged to remember that our rescuer has come, that he has paid a dear price to make us safe. And the more that we think in those categories, the more our lives and our behavior, and our prayers will be shaped by those words. We will speak according to the truth of Scripture. We will move through life with the wisdom of Scripture, and we will pray with Scripture-formed prayers. The desires of our hearts will be conformed to the words of Scripture. With God's Word abiding in us, we will never be disappointed in prayer. We will ask God for all we wish, and our wishes will be formed by the teaching of Christ, by his word, which the Father delights to honor. Apart from Christ, there is only death. But abiding in Christ, there is great joy and abundant life. Fourth, the highest and best, by which I mean glory and love and joy, are found in Christ. It is not uncommon for people today to criticize Christianity as a drudgery a restrictive and oppressive submission to God who hates and condemns many of the things that we love. It's such a common criticism that there are many churches today that have the word Christian in their name, but have either avoided much of the teaching of Scripture and much of the Word of Christ, or developed some interpretive contortionist techniques to manipulate Scripture into saying what they wish that it actually said. Many people today see parts of God's Word, or all of it, as archaic and outdated and a product of its unenlightened time. But Jesus did not see things this way, so we should tread carefully. He did not see faith in him and submission to his word as a repressive thing, but as a freeing one. 
He did not see the teaching of Scripture as a product of its time, but the Word inspired by God for the good of humanity throughout all time. And he makes that point here at the end of our passage by pointing to the revealed glory of God, the love of God, and the joy of his people in receiving both. God is glorified, he says in verse 8, when you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. When his people reflect his character and his holiness and his goodness in their lives, in us, he is revealed to be supremely valuable. And he says in verse 9 that when we are drawn into his presence, we are drawn into the eternally perfect love of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Among the relationships that we have here on earth, there is none like this. There is none like the love that we receive from Christ. Every relationship we have, whether with a friend or a spouse or a child or someone else, is fragile. Even the most long-standing and enduring relationships in our lives are prone to break because people are imperfect and stained with sin. We live every day with the possibility that those we love might hurt or betray us in some way. And we constantly endure the stress of hiding our ugly habits or our embarrassing secrets, even from those we love and trust the most, because we fear what might happen if we were truly known by anyone at all. It isn't healthy or good, but it's true, and we all know it. Like Adam and Eve, we have sewn together fig leaves to cover the things that we're ashamed of because because we are afraid because we want to hide things from even those we love and trust the most. But this is the best that we can do, the best that we can manage. But Jesus says in verse 9, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. The Father's love for the Son is eternal and comprehensive. It knows everything, and it loves completely. It is incalculable, immeasurable, and indescribable. And the Son, though He already knows every shameful secret of our past and our future, loves us with this love. We would be supremely foolish to scorn this love, but we do, because it conflicts with our love of sin and ungodly things. So Jesus says this, "'Abide in my love.'" If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments. Now, we should be careful not to misunderstand this phrase. He isn't saying, if you obey me, then I'll love you. That would be a wrong way to read this. How do I know that? Because we don't earn his love by obeying him any more than he earned his Father's love by obeying him. It's the same love that he pours into our lives that he has received from his Father. We live it out. We abide in Him by submitting to Him. We savor His love by abiding in Him, by obeying Him, by yielding to His word of rebuke when it speaks against our sin. And it is not drudgery. It is freedom. It is not restraint. It is the breaking of our chains to enter into eternal life and unbreakable joy, as he says in verse 11. These things I have spoken to you, he says, that my 
eternal and glorious and lasting and bright and all-consuming joy might be in you, that your joy might be full. He desires his people to have real joy, the joy of being truly known and loved anyway. Not the shadow of joy that we often settle for in this life. So it is his love that compels him to say, abide in me. This morning, as we observe Palm Sunday together, we commemorate Jesus' triumphant arrival into the city of Jerusalem in the days leading up to his crucifixion. When he came into the city, the people were excited, to say the least, as we saw this morning already in the passage from Matthew 21. They threw him a parade. They waved palm branches. They put their cloaks on the road ahead of him to walk on, and they shouted with joy as he passed by. Yet, Within just a few days, these same people will be condemning Christ and calling for his death. And in them we see that if we are not abiding in Christ, we are rejecting Christ. For the crowds in Jerusalem, it came about because they realized that he was not the Savior that they wanted. They had in mind a political revolution, so they wanted a warrior. But Jesus had not come to lead a political movement. So they turned away from him. They did not abide in the life that he offered them because they wanted a different life, one that they thought was better. Jesus wants his disciples to know, and he wants us to know, there is no better life. There is no other life. There is no life at all apart from the true vine. There is no higher joy There is no truer rescue. There is no clearer vision of eternal glory and everlasting life. We will still be tempted, as they were on that first Palm Sunday, silly and corrupted by sin as we are. We will still be tempted to reject him. We will be tempted to abide in the Savior that we have imagined for ourselves rather than in Christ. But we would be like a fisherman adrift in a stormy and freezing sea, rejecting the rescue of the Coast Guard because we would rather wait on a rescuer who better suits the one of our imagination. Let us abide in Christ, the true vine. Apart from him, there is no life, no fruit, no ultimate love, no redemption. And let us rejoice with true and unbreakable joy abiding in his love for us that saves us and gives us new and everlasting life in him. Would you pray with me this morning? Father God, as we receive these words this morning, cause them to abide in us, to form our desires, our wishes, and our hopes. Help us to abide in your Son, the true vine, where we receive the nourishment that will cause good fruit to grow. Make us into the people that you have called us to be, men and women of righteousness. When we are tempted to turn away from him or to find our hope and satisfaction elsewhere, strengthen our faith. Draw us nearer to yourself. May the truth of Christ's word bear fruit in us by the power of the Spirit. Lord, we ask all this in the name of your Son and our Savior.